0: Don't do anything with the short term in mind. I've always thought about doing anything I do for the long haul until it's time to change.
1: The Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, editor in chief of coffee business magazine Fifth Wave. In today's episode, we're bringing you an interview with a true global hospitality legend, a person with tremendous commercial instinct, and someone that I feel blessed to consider a friend and inspiring mentor within my own hospitality journey. This man is Tony Pappas, a multifaceted entrepreneur and genuine artisan with a global career spanning Michelin starred restaurants, boutique bakery, specialty coffee, and now a new venture in agriculture, developing an olive farm in Puglia, Southern Italy. In our conversation, Tony discusses his early background in hospitality as a revered chef and bread maker in Australia, and then joining New Zealand based specialty roaster All Press Espresso, before launching the business in London and Europe. Tony also shares his business instinct of knowing when to jump in and when to step away, and the importance of good communication and fostering a cohesive team culture by bringing every member of the team along on the adventure. Delighted to be here today in the studio with you, Tony. I wonder, Tony, if you could maybe give us a little bit of insight into your early career and your your background.
0: Yes, uh, look, I left school when I was 15 and my first job was in an orchard where I was uh, you know, going to be an apprentice and then I got distracted and decided to hitchhike around New Zealand um, and did a fair bit of surfing at the time, um, arrived eventually back in Auckland and uh, was looking for a job and I ended up in a kitchen. Um, and I just thought, man, I want a bit more of this. Uh, it's so exciting. I like this whole hospitality thing. And then I went on to get a job in a little 30-seater restaurant called Salters in Auckland. I, I just wanted to get more of it. So I studied and had this burning desire to go and work in a kitchen in Europe and, and see firsthand for myself all these beautiful things I'd learnt about. And I did my London City and Guilds and uh, by the time I was, you know, twenty-one, I got, I was in the in a kitchen which had a Michelin star, cooking French food in Amsterdam with all the all that marvelous produce that I'd only heard about. So that was sort of the uh, the start of my career in hospitality, which is an industry I absolutely love. I love the people in it. I love the independent thinkers. And that led on to a career in restaurants, my own restaurants eventually, and uh, some associated things, a a bread company, um, and then teaming up with Mike Allpress in the late 90s uh, in the coffee industry. Wow. Okay. So you spent some time in Sydney as well. Yes.
1: Tell us about that that era there.
0: So I I spent uh, 30 years nearly in Sydney. I went back because I'd... Uh, had a, a sort of loose arrangement with some friends to open a restaurant in Sydney, which I was very excited about. And um, we opened a restaurant called The Bayswater Brasserie. I became a partner in that and the chef. And that was in September 1982. And that restaurant went on for 20 years. It was um, very successful. Yes, and it was a brilliant time to be in Sydney because um, the the world of food was changing there was a, a very strong feeling for produce uh in the younger chefs and uh we as chefs were approaching producers people who were raising poultry or fishermen um and having a conversation directly with the the person who's harvesting it or catching it and the farmers and the fishermen and you know we were hanging out in butcheries and yeah. uh going to the farm and all that sort of stuff. So, and that was a turning point for, for cooking and food in Australia, following on from what was happening in other parts of the world, of course. I think that was the year I joined
1: the the culinary industry in, 82. in Sydney.
0: 82. When I arrived, I knew there was a young uh, New Zealander who had a restaurant called Pegram's, and his name was Mark Armstrong. And I went and knocked on the window of the kitchen one day, and he invited me, and he said, oh, you know, Kiwi boy, you've got to go and see this guy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And Damien was the top of the list, and he was working at a, uh, as, as a part owner um, of a restaurant called Butler's in Victoria oh, Street yeah. in King's Cross. Yeah. And so I rang Damien, and I said, look, I'm Mark Armstrong, i me to give you a call. I've been working in a one-star French restaurant in Amsterdam for a few, couple of years, and I'm looking for a job. So I went and had a chat. He gave me a job, and he had just purchased... It's Claude's from Claude, and he and uh, his wife, Josephine, went off uh, and set that up and uh, kept that running and, and yeah. rebuilt it, and it uh, was an absolutely iconic little restaurant. Yeah. So yes, I, st- I started there and then went on to, uh, I worked with Moen's Bayers Benson, who used to own Butler's at that stage, uh, with Damien. And uh and then we went on and started preparing to open uh the Basewater brasserie, which took about fourteen months to build and um uh, put together. So it's quite young, but we was I was twenty-three when we opened mm-hmm. that and um and it, and it was uh it was just mad. It opened and went ballistic. We had a queue up the street and it was intense. Yeah. And I think it took me about four years to get, get the show under control <laughs> and figure out what I was doing. Um, and I guess that was the first time I really understood the importance of building teams. And, uh, it wasn't just all about cooking lovely food and, um, and visiting producers and all of that sort of stuff. It was actually, if you're going to be able to do this consistently, uh, under this sort of pressure, you have to be organized and you can't do it all by yourself. And there was a, there was a
1: bakery, also, was that founded in Sydney?
0: In '92, I I'd gotten to know Ken Hom quite well, who's a very well-known American Asian chef. And I said to Ken, I'd I'd always loved I'd eaten at Chez Panisse in Berkeley, and I said I'd always love to go. I said, I oh, look, I know um, Alice, and uh, I'll, I'll tear it up for you. So I went and stayed with Ken, and and I I did a star at Chez Panisse and discovered this incredible bread that one of her former chefs, Steve Sullivan, was making from the Acme Bakery. And uh, I came back with a recipe in my pocket and had this uh, fantasy about making bread at a a slightly different level. We'd always made some bread at the Brasserie, and I'd made my first loaf of bread when I was about 15 and was fascinated by that. So I had a a love for the idea of making bread. And then I had a couple of guys in the pastry kitchen at the the brasserie that were really keen. And so we started developing it. And then I built a, a proving room upstairs in the pastry kitchen and and it went on from there. And that led to purchasing a, a rundown bakery and all of its equipment in the Waterloo area of mm-hmm. Sydney. And then we went on from there. We built a new bakery in the back of uh, what was the second iteration of All Press and uh, an upgrade in, in roasting equipment.
1: So how did all this lead to coffee?
0: Yeah, so, <laughs> so that was, the bakery sort of started around 93, 1993, and in the interim, we opened another uh, restaurant in Sydney called The Boathouse on Blackwattle Bay. Opened that restaurant in 1996, and then Mike Allpress Press had contacted me a few years before that, so going back a few steps in the late 80s, Mike had set up a coffee cart in Auckland after a trip to the US. And he came to me and said, I think there's a coffee roaster, an old rundown coffee roaster in the back of this building there where you live. Can you find out? So we hauled out a coffee roaster and I helped him ship it back to New Zealand. And that was the start of All Press. And then a few years later, Mike asked if I'd join forces with him and set up this fresh coffee roasting business in Australia, and then I discussed with him at the time, well, if, let's plan to do it in Australia first, but if we are successful at that, maybe we should think a little bigger about it and um, go further afield, perhaps London. So, <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. In um, 2010, I ended up in London. Um, so that was the start of the coffee business, and that was my introduction to Lama Zoko and all of the crew there we we've properly started roasting coffee in sydney in august 1999 and after lots of planning and um, um I, I bought nine lamazaka machines and went my god i've got how how do i sell these never sold anything in my life Mike said, don't worry, <laughs> you'll be all right. <laughs> so um, the rest is history, really. We had a little roastery in a warehouse uh, in Oredden Street in Alexandria. And then I s- set out to look for a proper building which we could build a new roastery in um, with a, a roaster that had more capacity. And that's when we found this building which we put together with the, the new... The Was that ba- Zetland? Yes, the new bakery in Zetland. yes. yeah. And so eventually, game on in London. Yes, so, so we went away and had a bit of a brainstorming weekend uh, and we just talked about what we what wanted and our, and our futures. Actually, one of the things that I said, so, so Tony, what do you want to do in the future? And I said, well, I actually want to you know, get a farm and grow something and I'm not sure what it is yet, but I'm sure it won't be coffee. And at that stage, we were we'd we'd been coming up to the UK a bit, and we said, "Let's do it. Let's go to London." And I put my hand up and said, "Look, I'll I'll go and do that." And that was great. It was a a very positive step for the business to know that one of us was going to go up there. At the same time, we um, we were somebody suggested that we should have go into this competition, which was running at the business school in Auckland at the university, and um, one of the things that we had to do was was catch up with one of the big donors charles in london so he, he had an industrial background yeah. and um he was very heavily involved in the business school so we met with him and in the first thing he said right so who which one of you is coming to london and uh, and everyone said he is and he said thank god for that he said because one of the biggest mistakes that businesses make is that one of the founders doesn't actually go and Get stuck in and yep. and do the startup, and um, so yes, we came to London in 2010. Uh, we opened up in Redchurch Street with a, a a roaster that we uh, packed up and shipped from New Zealand. And um, what made you choose Redchurch
1: Street? That that seems to be a really good decision in time because it became maybe you even helped to define that street, but. Uh, yeah. yeah, what was it about Redshirt Street that we kept, you felt was right? It was a bit of a risk at the time.
0: Yes, it's a good question. We it was daunting arriving, arriving in London and thinking about where you'd where you'd open a business like we'd imagined. You know, uh, a shopfront cafe with a roaster in it, um, which leads to a wholesale supply and all that sort of stuff. Where do you do that in London? It's obviously not going to be a you know. In, in Regent Street, um, but there's so It's, it's so vast, um, but we always stayed around that little bit of East London and liked the the, the feel of it. Um, and we always kept walking up and down uh, Redchurch Street. And Redchurch Street was very different in 2009 um, from what it is today. That was it was still quite. Uh, Grungy and uh, had lots of, had a, you know, lovely feel about it. And at the same time, and there was this building on the corner that was just, you know, had the shutters down and it was, looked pretty sad. And it was such a good sight. And every time I walked past it, I went, that's such a good building. And, uh, and you know, eventually he said, look, that, let's, let's work on finding out who, who owns it. And, and so that's, it was simply the right, just felt like the right location. And um, that instinct. I think I look. I think we've been pretty good at that over the years um, when I think about locations uh, for buildings I think that's an absolutely critical step you know it's a it's, it's a that's your your working billboard it's a visual thing people can recognize uh, the the brand if they keep walking you know they walk past the shop enough or drive past it
1: and so then there was a big project you outgrew that yes and created
0: yeah so Elston. when we when we were confident enough to say that people actually really enjoy what we're doing, and um, um, then we pushed the button on what we always hoped that we'd be able to do was was a, a long term home for all press in London, with the capacity to send coffee to to Europe and um, and then eventually open um, further roasteries in, in Europe. So in two thousand and fifteen, you know, just five years are. Uh, after we arrived we opened uh, uh we opened Dalston Lane.
1: And that subsequently was so successful the entire all press business was eventually sold?
0: Yes. That was a planned thing. Um, Mike, I think in two thousand and eighteen wrote me a note and uh he said, Look, I think it's time to do something else and I just, you know, uh jumped up with a big smile on my face and I said, yeah, because I'd had an experience once before with the bread company, which I sold in 2018, um, where we developed this beautiful thing. Uh, all press. We knew had, we had a wonderful business and brand, uh, would great team in place. Um, and I felt like we completed a, we'd done a really good job. And, um, and that somebody else could take it to where it needed to go next. Um, it's a big responsibility thinking about the next ten years of a business. and you know you always, I think, need to to have a long view about these things. And it's such a relief to know that you've got it to a point in somebody else who you you feel and trust has that has that. Uh, drive and ability, and the financial backing and, and and all that to take it to the next level, and that's great. Opens up great opportunities for the people that you've been lucky enough to work with for all those years, and um and the consumer. And uh, so we had we had a moment like that. We had uh, we had managed to manage the the situation in twenty twenty with the start of COVID. Uh, very well, and our business worked well eventually with that. With, you know, there was a rocky few months where we were figuring out where this might go and whether we were safe or, uh, or not.
1: And and then, so you had business interests in multiple parts of the world, including the boathouse in Water Bay. Yeah. What
0: happened there with that? So the boat, so, so All Press, um, we quite quickly figured out that we... We needed to make sure we didn't run out of money and and that we kept a close eye on just what was happening day-to-day, minute-to-minute, really, in the businesses. The Boathouse, I was watching very carefully from February because I thought this is really going to impact the business. And I was also concerned because we'd been trying to negotiate a new lease for the Boathouse, and it was going on for about four years, and I still really didn't... I thought we were closer, but... We still didn't really have an answer. I started watching the bookings go going down and talking to the team and they were trying to find ways to turn us into a takeaway and and pr- produce, you know, f- it was a very different feeling from what we were doing in All Press because we were, we turned our shop in Dalston into a grocery, which was, it made lots of sense. People could, had a chance to get out of their houses and come down and See someone else and pick up some things, and that was going very well. But the restaurant we were isolated in that sense. We were on the water opposite the fish markets in Blackwater Bay, down the end of a road, and very much a destination. And on the 22nd of March, I had the terrible job of uh, t- telling my uh, my team that I, first of all the chef and um, and the manager. In the, I, I could see they were one wondering what we're going to do next. They had these great ideas and they were so enthusiastic about what we could do. But I said, look, it, it doesn't make any sense, and I, I'm I'm so sorry, but I've, I've got to make this decision that we close the restaurant now. And so, you know, people were in tears, and I announced it to the team on the Sunday. But there was no way we could have sustained COVID and not. You know to close for a big chunk of time and reopen a restaurant is a very expensive exercise in itself uh to fire things up again if we had a lease and yeah. and there's no was no point in investing that into a so yeah so that was the uh, the tough thing but the the at the end of the day it was undoubtedly the right decision i had i could pay everybody out I could pay all of our suppliers all the staff got fully paid out all the supplies got fully paid out and um and then we had a moment we had a lot of uh wine left and so we we decided to send out a, an email to our, our regulars and we turned the place into a wine shop for three days and we had the most amazing experience with all our customers coming bought all of our, our wonderful wines and sort of said goodbye with some tastings i hope <laughs> um, yes, I think there was a bit of that going on. So, so it was a it was a great thing, and um, in the end, it was you know it was it was just the right decision. Quite clear that you're a good
1: decision maker, especially those tough decisions. Do you have a framework or a process that you use, or is it just down to instinct?
0: Um, I, I guess it has to. The gut feeling has to be right. Uh, so I do. I I do. Uh, for a start, I don't get all my decisions right. <laughs> I don't have any trouble making decisions. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm sure about that. Um, but I know when it does, it something feels wrong. I don't. I don't know if there's any tricks. It's just weighing up all of the facts, not getting too caught up in hope. Uh, you know, you've got to have some the hope versus evidence thing. Um, you've got to have evidence that things are going to work as well Um, but at the same time a bit of risk that's well managed and thought through doesn't you know sometimes they're the best decisions in your life and uh uh, or in my life anyway they've they've worked really well the the boathouse was a great decision in the beginning to to run that site as a it was it was tricky it took me a year to negotiate the lease and and get it into some sort of shape that we we knew we could run a viable business in that in that property and do something really special for our customers and um, it was a fabulous restaurant for 24 years and uh, and it was the right time to close it under the circumstances
1: yeah well you've certainly made some some incredible progress now life after all press obviously that was a good decision where are you heading now
0: yeah so the all press was a it felt right, and uh, it was it was a great decision to move on and i'd and I'd kind of made some plans for that anyway, because it wasn't something that we just uh, decided the night before. It was you know something that we' talked about uh, quite a lot. I felt I, we'd worked our way up to the point where it was great to hand that over. and um we Maureen and I had spent quite a bit of time about ten, twelve years going to Puglia and looking for a place where we could spend time and um, away from London. And I had this lingering thing about doing something on the land. And it was pretty obvious when we got there, that was going to be something to do with olives. And we, we did, we bought a masseria in Ostuni, which is between Bari and Brindisi and Puglia. And we ended up buying this masseria with some friends from Sydney and uh, renovated it, and that's now running as a guest house. It's called Maseria Manjumuso. But Maureen and I decided that we'd li- like to live in Puglia for a big chunk of the year. And we took on this other property, which is a, a farm and uh, some lovely buildings, which were halfway through renovating. And uh, and we've started um, rejuvenating the trees, um, um, and I suppose uh, we talked briefly once about the parallels between producing extra virgin olive oil yeah. and and co- the coffee business. Um, it's it, having the frontoia on the farm is is uh, is a little bit like having a roaster in a in a roastery. Um,
1: yeah, maybe just to, for a novice like me with olive oil. So the frontoia is a. That's where you're pressing the olives, and
0: yeah, it's like the yeah. roastery. Yeah. So the, all the yeah, activity happens in the frontoia. It's the it's the mill, um, and um, there's some some new sophisticated machinery which extracts it. Cold, you know, everyone's heard of cold pressed. Um, essentially, it's you produce a, a juice from the olives, and you want to do that without heating the the, the product up. So, so that's that's our aim. We, we will launch the business into the market. It's, you know, we're not setting out to create a, an international brand, just to rejuvenate this farm and you know get it producing and and have fun producing a beautiful olive oil, which is such a beautiful product. It's an absolutely delicious thing.
1: So you're an artisan, really. If I look at I look at it in, in a sense, the the craftsmanship that you've. Put into food, to bakery, then to coffee, buildings, and now it's olive oil and buildings, sort of thing. Is what's special about why olive oil now? Is there anything else you could
0: have turned your hand to? There's a there's a hell of a lot of olive trees in in Puglia, yeah. <laughs> and I love the product. Right. So I love coffee and drink lots of coffee. I uh, eat you know large amounts of olive oil, and um, it's good for your health. And uh, I think. It's also a, the bigger picture is that we're part of a community down there, and it's been inspiring since 2017. We we started, build, you know, rebuilding Masarym Muso and working with local builders who are specialists with lime and lime wash, and we've got a great relationship with those people. We've now moved about 20 minutes away into the hinterland. And we've got a, we're working with a farmer called Mimo, who is has been looking after those trees for eight or nine years. He's young, um, and he's smart, and he sees us wanting to do the best out of this property and um, and invest in it. And he's excited. And we're, we produced a small amount of oil this year and. He's, he was so excited to see uh, the result of that, and so it's a, it is about being part of a community and seeing if we can show them some of the things that we've learnt away along the way. But it's an education every morning when I get up, you know, going out and talking to these guys, wandering around, the, looking at what's going on with the trees, um, learning how to prune the trees, you know, wh- wh- how we manage this farm, how we really get it back just to. to it's prime and um, bring some beautiful oil to the table.
1: Well, that seems like sort of a circle from early career, began on an orchard and now you're kind of back. Yeah. Um, is this going to be a business or just a hobby?
0: Oh, no, we'll run it as a business. Um, it, it just gives us a few guidelines and puts a bit of pressure on us and uh, makes us uh, do a good job and strive for it. And at the end of the day, the most important thing to me is that the, the oil tastes great and everyone's proud of it. Can't wait to try and we, it. And we give people in the community some jobs, and yeah. um, agriculture is quite, uh, you know, it's, it's relentless business. It's, uh, you start to worry about your trees and yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. going on with the land and the weather. and
1: Yeah, less, less predictable than hospitality, which is unpredictable at the best of times. <laughs> so, so you've developed businesses in many parts of the world and often multiple businesses at the same time. To do this successfully, it seems to me that you need to build skilled, autonomous teams who just get on with the job. So what's the secret to building great teams and and managing them, and often remotely?
0: Well, communication is a, is a huge part of that, isn't it? I think people feeling like they're part of something that's an adventure. And obviously, working with respect for the people that you work with and an in, in our businesses over the the years, we have tons of great friends who have remained friends and we're in touch all the time with them since we worked together and um I think when i when I talk to them about their lives after the business and when I asked them what is uh, what did you particularly enjoy about working with us it was always um, you know it was always like an adventure I think that that's um that's something that I like I like an adventure I like a bit of uh, I like to work in the grey. Um, I'm not particularly black and white, and I like to figure things out and understand, and get to understand how I can do them better. And and I think choosing people who are like-minded, I've always worked very well with people who are, are attracted to the hospitality industry, because as I said right in the beginning, I think they they're independent thinkers. Often and putting together the right combination of people is another important thing so I think also choosing people for who have the right skills for the right roles and uh, I know that sounds like an obvious one but yeah I think uh, that's that's pretty important brilliant tips there for
1: success communication adventure respect hire like-minded people with the right skills I'm fascinated because you've been someone that's Almost like everything you've you've done over this career is, is turned to gold, but it's it's over time. It's over
0: a long time. So you're obviously a long term thinker as well. Don't do anything with the short term in mind. I've always thought about doing anything I do for the long haul until it's time to change. And I think you can see there I've moved on from coffee and moved on from bread and um, and you know coffee machines and um, and restaurants um happily you know feeling really uh satisfied with my involvement and very feel very blessed to have worked with so many fantastic people because you don't do any of these things by yourself um you achieve with other, others and through others
1: is there any chance that there might be another hospitality or even some kind of a food service vision there perhaps in your properties in
0: italy yes uh, interesting when we had to go to the notary to sign up for this property which is called masseria borzoni in the deed it's quite an interesting process in italy you go to a notary and they have to read all of the the deed to you and you have to agree with it and then sign off on it that was actually two and a half hours of reading and but i was asked the question before we got there you know tell us all the other things that you want to Want to put in there. So, so I said, uh, we want to be able to do a wind farm. We want a, um, we want itinerant, uh, worker accommodation built on the site. Um, we need a tasting room, a a cellar for the olive oil, and a tavola calda, um, which is, you know, a little restaurant. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is having a, um, a bar in London where we which is like a filling station for your olive oil, you can come and collect your okay. olive oil there, a tasting a place where we can teach people about olive oil and a and and we make great sandwiches there and and a nice glass of wine to go with it. Um, corner shop, hole in the wall, but with a really neat tasting olive oil station in it.
1: Great. Well, it seems we're going to be tasting more of your delicious food sometime sometime soon in London, as as well as uh, down in Puglia. Tony, um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
0: Uh, I think it's, uh, somebody said to me once, Tony, you can do all those things, you can do anything you like, Uh, you can do everything in life, you just can't do it all at the same time. In other words, be patient.
1: So you've had um, a very successful career, and you you know we've established here you're you're a great decision maker, and you've you've added a lot of value to the whole hospitality industry. And you've you know you have a reputation as thousands of friends throughout the world of hospitality that you've you've helped to improve their careers. And what so you've obviously had some good people around you, and there must have been some people that have inspired you. Who who are those people that have Mentored or inspired you to be the person you are.
0: Um, well, I can think of um, two right off the bat. I think um, one of them's uh, Alice Waters from Chez Panisse, and I think I mentioned that um, earlier to you. And and the second one, of course, is Piero Bambi, who you who you knew very well. And they are both, in different ways, inspirational people who have who'd followed their principles all the way through their working lives. And, um, I'm starting with Alice. Uh, I worked in, uh, at shape and East doing a stage for about a week in 1992. And it was, it was an amazing experience to one, to, to see this restaurant was like an, an amazing entity, which was like a whole ecosystem you know this the produce would come in from little farms around the place in fact Berkeley I was amazed they had these urban gardens like allotments of beautiful things growing around it so we had all this lovely produce coming in the first morning I was I was there I was just astonished it was, it was wonderful they write uh, the menu every morning though they've got a plan which is based on what is seasonally available from the farms that they work with, and then you know right through to everything that was used. All the compost went away. All everything was. There was a whole area of recycling, and it was just so well organised. And you know farmers dropping their stuff in. And I came back absolutely inspired. I went and did a course for a year in, in bakery technology, which is a, a one-off uh, uh, course at the Technical Institute in Sydney, and. Studied the science of bread again to up, up the ante on, on my bread skills. And, um, and then, you know, half the year studying microbiology and the, the other half practicing what we learned in, in, the, in the bakery. <clears throat> Fantastic. Inspiring. Wonderful.
1: Yeah, certainly, you know, that's 50 years ago. What a pioneer of farm to table, localness. And that edible schoolyard sounds amazing, yeah.
0: Amazing thing. And of course, the other person is Piero, and uh, what an inspirational person, a, a really talented engineer, designer, somebody who who actually really appreciated um, baristas, and I think that's, that was part of his success. He could no, not only build a machine that had had a beautiful form and was incredibly functional, but he he actually understood the... The end of the process. and um and I think that's why he's been so very much loved by the specialty coffee industry. Certainly, well, he's got an incredible pedigree or had an incredible pedigree as well. so yeah, he's a he was an inspirational man, a real visionary. so those are those are two people who have had, you know uh, they've done amazing things uh, with their lives, and they're chosen professions and and i've i've always looked to them for for that to, to have that feeling when i'm going into something something new like we are at the moment with um farming and you know beautiful olive trees
1: well that's a great way to end it thanks tony for joining us here today on fifth wave thanks for having me and that's all this week for the fifth wave podcast If you enjoyed the show and want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose. Links are in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Geoffrey Young, Hannah Heath, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's song, in collaboration with The Coffee Music Project, is a beautiful track don't Delete Me by fellow New Zealander, an artist that is currently based in LA, Lisa Crawley. And Until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated.